0: Outreach is great, but what does it really mean when I want to see the line items? You know, is is it paying for (laughs) private drivers and vacations and, you know, trips to department stores? I'm not joking. This is I I know I've heard about this from many people within these organizations where funds have been really misused.
1: I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. I can actually locate the moment in time when I lost my naivete regarding honesty in charitable giving. It was a long time ago. It was before I was married. And a guy wearing a kippah came up to me in central Jerusalem, showed me his Tudat his identity card, and told me that he was stranded, ran out of gas, and needed to get back to Petach Tikva in time for Shabbos. So I asked him how much he needed. He told me. And I gave it to him. I know you're rightly thinking, okay, you're really stupid, and that's true. But I was younger and more innocent and way more naive. A little later that day, I was walking somewhere else in Yerushalayim, and I saw the same guy, and it looked as though he'd just finished talking to another religious Jew about my age. I ran up to the second guy and asked what the person I'd given money to had said to him. And he answered, they said he needed money, he was stranded, and he had to get to Petah Tikva before Shabbat. So I said, he's a liar. He said the same thing to me and I already gave him the money. Let's go find him. But by then he had blended into the large Friday crowd and was nowhere to be seen. So that was the day I lost my innocence about tzedakah. But the story has a coda. Maybe about two years later, I was in central Jerusalem on a Friday, and a guy approached me with a story about being stranded without enough gas and how he needed to get back to Petach Tikva before Shabbos. I hadn't remembered what the first guy looked like, but now it all came back, and I recognized him as though he had talked to me the day before. I was so startled, I hardly knew what to say. I kind of told him off sarcastically, saying something like, Oh, you look familiar. You once said the same thing to me. And he started yelling that I needed to get my eyes checked, and he took off. And I was a little irritated at myself. I wished that I had said something more meaningful, because I'm sure that I had been scammed many times. But in my own mind, this guy was the liar who had officially destroyed some of my innocence. Unfortunately, I hadn't thought about what to say, and I missed the opportunity. But the story has yet another coda. Some months later, I was in central Jerusalem on a Friday, and a guy approached me with a story about being stranded without enough gas and how he needed to get back to Petach Tikva before Shabbat. When he finished his sob story, I looked into his eyes and I said, I want you to know that I don't forgive you. And I can't forgive you because it's not my place to forgive you. You are the person who taught me that you can't trust people who ask for Stucca. I'm sure that since then, there have been plenty of people who asked me for money. They were genuine, but I turned them down because you made me lose faith in people all those people who do need money and didn't get it, that's on your shoulders. I don't pretend to believe that this had an effect on him. I'm sure many of you can probably think of a better way for me to have responded, but that was my introduction to falsehood in the world of Jewish charities. And what was true for one individual liar in my case is actually true of some real organizations and campaigns that you or I may have been giving to all of these years. The sad thing is that while the guy I talked to isn't typical, He may not be such an outlier either. Avital Ciza Goldschmidt highlighted this issue in a Twitter thread a couple of months ago, and I was honored to be able to discuss this issue with her further in the following interview. We also talked about her dual role as a journalist and a Rebetzin, the conflicts that are engendered by that dual role, the fine line between journalism and activism, and more. First, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffeehouse team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at com, or go to jchpodcast.com. That's jchpodcast.com to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Avital Chijek Goldschmidt is a writer living in New York City. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, Foreign Policy, Vox Vogue, Salon Glamour, and Business Insider, among others. Previously, she was the life editor at The Forward and a reporter for Haaretz. Avital Shizek-Goldschmidt, thank you so much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast.
0: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott.
1: You were on the podcast, Avital, a couple of years ago to speak about racism in the Orthodox community, and today I want to talk about something else that you've reported. It's not even your own reporting. It's something that you translated and tweeted back in October about transparency in religious charities, or perhaps I should say the lack thereof. We'll get there shortly, but first I wanted to ask you a couple of questions in general about your dual roles as a Rebbetson and as a reporter who's reporting sometimes borders on the edge of activism, forcing community members to confront issues they otherwise might want to ignore. So first, let me ask you, has this been a problem for you, being both a community leader and at the same time a reporter, perhaps telling the community things they don't want to know?
0: Uh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, definitely, there's been plenty of conflicts um, from the very beginning. I would say, since I quote-unquote got to this job, which happened by way of marriage and nothing else.
1: Wait, which one? You're talking about Rebitson.
0: the Rabbitson job. Yeah, that's really what complicated it, right? This role within the community, where you're, um, where you're serving the community, where discretion is actually one of the most important, I think, qualities mm-hmm. uh, for a role like this. Um, and at the same time, you know, I think number one, there's like this very like the quotidian issues, like, do I write about something that has a potential, you know, whiff of a conflict of interest? Uh, For example, I once made the mistake of writing a satirical critical piece about an organization uh, that I, you know, I was assigned to write about, it was way back when I was writing for Haaretz, And uh, the next day we got a phone call turns out the president of that organization was a member of our synagogue. And I had no idea things like that happened, you know, on a day-to-day basis, I would say, you know, questions like that arose, but then there's this sort of larger issue, which is like, you're in this position that allows you also to see a lot. And I mean, you know, there's a front row seat in the actual sanctuary, but there's also this behind closed doors, perspective that you get on the way that the rabbinate works on the way that community organizations work Mm -hmm. uh, on issues that you know people really come to you with and sometimes they are i think systemic issues sometimes they are things that are you know pretty troubling and need to be reported so there's this constant question of like not that i would ever god forbid violate clergy confidentiality but but there is this constant question of How can I navigate those boundaries? How do I figure out what I can say and what I can't? Um, How do I, but also how do I use this position for, of potential influence for the better, right? I I think it it would be wrong of me. It would be, it would be really just like unethical of me not to use this position uh, to, to talk about certain issues that I see because of it.
1: Well, how do you balance that? If somebody comes and tells you something in confidence, obviously, you're not going to betray the confidence of that person. At the same time, it might alert you to an issue that's going on. You might then speak about it in general terms or even report about it in general terms, obviously, keeping the confidence of that person. And that person still may feel betrayed.
0: Yeah. um, You know, it hasn't happened to me yet, as far as I know. Uh, I certainly never, you know, ever sort of betray in that way like i would never take something and someone says to me in confidence and you know use it in reporting but they certainly inform my views on community issues so an example of this would have been you know over the years sort of it was a general issue but one that i got to see in this position of uh, this question about abortion and
1: right you did a lot of reporting on that about a year ago right
0: uh ew, it's already gonna be two three years now
1: oh wow okay I,
0: but over the years, I had, you know, I saw how women would approach my husband with questions. And I would see women of various religious backgrounds sort of asking, what is the halachic view on abortion, right? And seeing those conversations, again, from within the rabbi study made me have a very different perspective on the way that it's discussed, I think, in the public forum, uh, the way that it's often made into a very black and white issue. Right. Abortion. Nuance
1: is not is not usually associated with that discussion.
0: Certainly not. And certainly not within the from community. So in the Orthodox, you know, political football game, there would be a lot of black and white about this. And then like, from the halachic standpoint, from the rabbinic, pastoral standpoint. Um, and, I, and I say this, not as just as someone who watched these conversations unfold, but also, you know, was there for conversations with post discussing various cases. Like you saw, I saw so much, I think, compassion. Uh, and complexity, right? And certainly nuance. So, so that was something that really spurred me. And in, um, in 20, I think it was 2018, that I had that big piece about abortion, in the foreword about abortion from community, uh, where I collected testimonies of women who have made the decision for one reason or another. And as part of that discussion, I, I spoke to them a lot about the experience of talking to a rabbi about that decision. So that was something that was deeply informed by this position as quote-unquote Uh mm. And I think there are many others. You know, sometimes I've written about just very bluntly about the role of the Rebbetzin in this question. Like, you know, it's an unpaid position. Uh, maybe Chabad is doing something right. Perhaps an
1: undesired position in some people's minds.
0: Yeah, certainly.
1: Maybe the community doesn't want a Rebbetzin telling them what to do. Maybe the Rebbetzin doesn't want to be in that role or isn't qualified for that role.
0: Sure. Right. Absolutely, uh, and certain days I feel that way too, <laughs> depending on my mood. So, so I think it, it sort of gives this general color, I think, to, to some of the work that I do. Um, there is this other interesting element that I've seen lately, where I've gotten a lot more. I think increasingly, I would say, over the last two years, maybe three uh, messages and letters from women in the from community who feel that they can talk to me because I am married to a rabbi about one issue or another, an issue that they would hope that I report. So I find that interesting and funny because I think I walked into this dual role thinking this is going to be really complicated and like a massive conflict. But I do find that as I hopefully mature, that the two are actually much more harmonious than I expected.
1: You know, it's interesting when you talk about that harmony, I'm thinking back to what you mentioned a few minutes ago about the president of the organization that you would criticize and it on sitting in your shul. Yeah. And that's such a difficult situation to be in, probably not just for a rabbi, but for any rabbi. It's easy for me to speak. I have smicha, but I don't have a rabbinic position. I can sit behind my microphone and say what I want, and I'm not in danger of losing a job at the yeah. pulpit. But it's hard because a rabbi's job and a rabbi's job, by extension, is to tell people things they don't necessarily want to hear. And... At the same time, those are the same people who are paying your salary. It's just right. gotta be so difficult.
0: Well, here's my hot take. I think that the rabbinate and this isn't broad brushstrokes, but generally the American rabbinate has gone in a direction where I think rabbis and rabbis, rabbis really, are not are not doing the work of saying the hard things to <laughs> their congregations.
1: Oh, I mean, I think that's true. I'm talking about in theory what they should be doing, not necessarily yes. what they are doing.
0: Yes. Yeah, so I think that is in theory true, but I think very rarely will you find a Rav who's giving the correct Musser to that community, right? I don't mean, you know, you'll hear, you know, in a modern Orthodox congregation, you'll hear support Israel and remember the Holocaust. And in a Haredi community, you're going to hear, you know, the women should dress more tznius and we should learn more Torah. But like no one is actually talking to the actual issues that are, you know. So I think that is that that's a general issue. But I think but actually, that's where I think potentially rabbinic work, communal work does go hand in hand with journalism, in which both are doing the difficult job of, you know, in the words of Peter Finley Dunn, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable.
1: In that case, let me ask you about the line between journalism and activism, because you have to report the facts. And on some level, that means being disinterested in saying what happened and what is happening. On the other hand, it obviously should at times provoke outrage. How did you toe that line?
0: It's a great question. I, I will edit you on that. I don't think it's, my goal is never to provoke outrage. I think, you know, the goal of writing journalism is to lift a mirror to a reality that already exists. The reality is what provokes outrage. It's not the process. Well, of I actually meant
1: that it provokes outrage in the writer.
0: Right. I mean, I do, I do think there is this sort of, how do I say this failed? I think it's, it's a terrible notion (laughs) that um, journalists have to be so objective to sort of take on this voice of God, where it's not about showing bias, not showing bias, but sort of telling the story in a way that is, that is authentic to the story and not I find many reporters, especially novice reporters, are so busy with, with showing two sides equally in a sort of very even handed way where they will make sometimes moral um, equivalencies that I think are pretty troubling. So, you know, the, jo- the goal of a journalist is yes, is to report the facts, certainly. But I will tell you one thing <laughs> in today's day and age with social media, with the amount of information that we are receiving, we have many people reporting facts. You just open your Twitter and obviously there's fake news. Obviously there's, there's all that, but you will get, you know, the latest report Pfizer just came out with X, right? That's not what journalism is all about, you know, inc- exclusively. Journalism is also about explaining to a reader, analyzing for a reader, showing something. A journalist's job is to really dive into something so deeply and do the difficult work of really understanding the complex parts of that story, not being a stenographer.
1: Yeah. When I spoke to Shauna Aronson about a month ago about the whole Chaim Valder case here in Israel, she talked about the fact that journalists, in this case from Haaretz, are so careful with everything that they're doing that I'm not going to say it has to be true. But in this case, she said, of course, it has to be true. The line they create to allow something to be printed, it's such a high standard and that obviously isn't purely objective. We're not going to take Chaim Walder on the one hand and his victims on the other hand and report both of them equally as if they both have a side to this. So obviously it's not simply saying both sides of the story. That's a very simplistic way of looking at things.
0: Right, that, that, that's a great example of that, of where, but you will sometimes see stories, um, not necessarily in sexual abuse, but you will see stories where there was like, Obvious wrongdoing and the reporter will kind of just be like, well, I don't know, you know, and, and I and I hear this sometimes I see how they tweet about it. I see how they talk about it on podcasts afterwards. And I find it really shocking. Like you were in the story. You understood that there was some there was there was a moral side here and there was someone who did not act morally. Right. You, you have to have some sense of judgment there.
1: And of course, looking at the reporting on Israel. I am not someone who says Israel is always right. I don't pretend that's true, but I think we see that even-handedness gone to an extreme in trying to report what goes on in Israel, where you see literally headlines and reporters talking about someone being shot without mentioning that same person who was shot had just stabbed somebody. You have to read a few paragraphs in.
0: Exactly, yes.
1: You just mentioned you're being in the story. I think probably something very difficult for you, Avital, has been recently, you and your husband have been in the news for for reasons we don't have to get into right now, but- Mm -hmm. It's funny because as a journalist, you're someone who asks people to speak and you're always trying to make people open up to enable the truth to come out. And over here, you've probably been on some level silenced or at least not able to speak as much as you normally would want to.
0: Definitely. I think this has been the most painful part of the last two months has been my inability to speak about what actually happened. Some of the very disturbing things that really did happen that have not been reported. Um, Of course, the other
1: side isn't constrained at all. They can say whatever they want.
0: Well, they hired political operatives to smear us in the media. So, yeah, they have no issue with it. Um, But we're trying to avoid that and take the high road.
1: Okay, let's get into our topic about charities, if that's okay with you. I want to quote what you tweeted back in October. You said, our communities have a serious problem on our hands. The lack of fiscal transparency in religious nonprofits, the ease with which corruption happens at the expense of innocent donors and the systemic cover up of this. So those are three specific, serious charges. I want to go through each one of them. If you could explain, please, what do you mean by a lack of fiscal transparency?
0: Okay. Essentially, these organizations um, promise to deliver funds raised for one specific goal, but donors don't see the actual reports. And generally, it's questionable where these things go. And sometimes in this specific case, we know exactly where it ended up going thanks to reporting. And it was certainly not to the desired goal. Um, for donors. I tweeted this as part of a larger thread about a very shocking report produced by the Marker in Israel by a reporter named Guy Megiddo. The report documented how uh, Haredi online fundraisers for various tragedies and medical procedures, you see them all the time, mm-hmm. right? We do. So Abed needs a kidney transplant, orphan bride wedding is tonight. We're bombarded by this. Uh, and we are because... Charity is sown so deeply into our ethic as Torah Jews, So there is there is a good reason for why we are sort of, why people, I think, open their hearts and their wallets. Uh, you you see, you, I mean, we all know, we ourselves are donors to many of these causes. When someone sends you a link, you, you donate. So it's part of this sort of culture. And unfortunately, there are people who have taken advantage of this culture and an advantage of what I would call the average from you know, community member. Uh, In this specific case, these fundraisers essentially were smokescreens for money making schemes in which only two to 5% of the proceeds went to charity, uh, went to the actual needy. Uh, By the way, some of them, it was questionable whether there actually even existed a family at the center of this You mean whether
1: or not the person who was being promoted even was a real person?
0: Correct you know, Tamar needs whatever. And and there was a story of one donor who donated 18,000 shekel over the phone because he was so heartbroken by the story he heard on the radio. And he called a few weeks later to find out if this person received the medical procedure they needed. And they were so, they were absolutely like shut him down. They were like, we can't connect you. We can't tell you anything about it whatsoever. So those are like major red flags. And, you know, and the rest of the money generally goes to Ascanim, uh, and media for promotion, quote-unquote, as well as those who sort of, you know, the machers who sort of secure rabbinic askamos, uh rabbinic approvals for these fundraisers.
1: Well, let me ask you a question about that, because obviously this sounds very, very corrupt, but at the same time, all organizations, all terrible organizations do have overhead, and yeah. sometimes isn't, isn't it just a question of, okay, this organization's a good organization, they happen to have a lot of overhead, but it, People aren't being overpaid. No one's stealing money. It's just there are a lot of employees who need to be paid in order to raise the money to get it to that person who actually needs it. So is that so bad?
0: It's a great question. Uh, I think the question of large overhead is a separate conversation. Uh, large overhead can be unethical, and we can talk about that too. But the bottom line here is not about you know how the money is used. It's really about transparency, right? I want to know. When I see that fundraiser, there should be a banner at the top saying, by the way, 95% of these proceeds are not going to actually go to this family. Mm-hmm. And I should make be able to make the decision about whether to donate or not for that reason.
1: Then let's move on to what you said when you described the ease of corruption. Why is it so easy for these organizations to fool the public?
0: Yeah, there are many easy ways to get away with fraud, unfortunately. Uh, that is something that I've learned over the last year or so, looking into these stories, there are people who have literally devoted their lives and careers to figuring out how to game the system of nonprofits and how to prey on naive donors uh, in order to funnel money through those nonprofits.
1: What are some of the methods that they use? Meaning, is it something which the attorney general could stop? Is it something which is technically legal but just unethical? Or are these actual illegalities? Is it a matter of fooling the public but not the police? What's really going on? Realizing, of course, that every case is different.
0: Right, every case is different. And I think there's also there, there are differences between the United States and Israel, uh, where the laws are different, where reporting is different from nonprofits. Um, it's pretty basic. Uh, people collect money. And the first question is, is there, transpa- is there transparency? Is there even an attempt at showing a, some sort of a financial report to donors? Uh, the moment there isn't, you should ask a question, right? You, you have no idea where it's going. You don't know what percentage of it is actually going to the recipient or the stated goal. There are various sc- schemes through which one can do this. You know, I think these fundraising websites are very problematic in that way because they don't report much of this. Uh, but in the States, another way to do that, which we see often enough, is you can incorporate a house of worship in uh, which one can hide fraud, because here houses of worship do not have to report any spending. I mean, it's mind-boggling to me, but it's a situation that is at best asking for financial irregularities. I mean, and-
1: it sounds like an invitation to money laundering.
0: Absolutely. At worst, it's outright thievery.
1: Wow. Let me ask you about something you mentioned a moment ago when you talked about the money that goes to the Skunim. And the reason that that's the most bothersome to me personally is everything else could technically be viewed as a form of excessive overhead, commercials on the radio or the various employees who are creating the campaign. But money to us going to procure rabbinic approval sounds like the height of rabbinic corruption or at least massive corruption in the rabbinic establishment. Is that really happening often or is that an occasional situation?
0: I don't know if I can answer that because it's so hard to collect data on this, but it, ha- I mean, we certainly know what happens. These are, you know, those asconim in those sort of middle middleman positions uh, <laughs> are often ranking it in. Uh, and one has to ask where where is that The money name?
1: goes to them as opposed to the yeshiva or the organization that's associated with the rabbi or the rabbi himself?
0: We don't know. Right. That's the big question. And again. You can you can charge if you want to say, you know, you're a consultant and you have these, you know, it's almost like a political lobbyist, right? A political lobbyist, they can charge absurd amounts of money in order to get you into the room, let's say, with the congressman. That's fine. That's fine. But that needs to be transparently shown.
1: But with a political consultant, you know exactly what you're getting. You're paying for the ability to meet with this person and, you know, you're getting that here. Everything's happening secretly or under the table.
0: It's happening under the table. I mean, you know what you're getting. You're getting a sort of a letter with a signatory. Um, Yeah, but you,
1: the donor, might not know that.
0: You, the donor, may not know that. Exactly. And that's the problem.
1: Right. Okay, let's talk about the third thing you mentioned there, the systemic Mm cover-up. What do you mean by the cover-up of this?
0: So, you know, I think organizations often cover up. Some of them are consultants that are sort of brought in by the organization, and sometimes they're with the employees themselves. Uh, Included in this is also, unfortunately, from media outlets, many of them, because they're really complicit in this, right? In the Marker story, some of the names mentioned were our massive personalities in the Haredi media world um, who need this ad placement for these fundraisers. So they are charging obscene amounts of money in order to promote these fundraisers. What's interesting is that you actually don't need to be a Sherlock Holmes to find these red flags often incredibly often I will do some very preliminary research and find that the head of an organization or the person in charge of finances there has a criminal history in financial fraud they may have changed their name for example you know going by a, a Jewish name or a Yiddish name instead of their legal name or they may have done something as simple as hiring you know an SEO firm to bury the Google their Google results, so that donors don't find it on the first page or two of a search. Mm-hmm. Um, but you will often find that people who are doing this have a previously, you know, proven record on this.
1: Whoa. Okay. When you mention these media companies, I want to ask you your opinion about this. Is it the responsibility of the media company to investigate every advertisement? Because you often see in from publications, we're not responsible for the cost route of this restaurant. We're not responsible for the claims made by a given advertiser. So is it really the media company's fault? And along with that, if a radio station needs to pay its employees as well fine, they might charge a huge amount for commercial, but that's simply the price of doing business in a radio station. I'm not sure I'm going to blame the media for having high prices. Are they supposed to give it away for free? I mean, I'm not sure what you'd have them do instead.
0: Right. Again, you know, we we, <laughs> we live in a capitalist society. You are welcome to charge a high rate, um, whatever it takes. I think the question is always just about transparency, right? I know that 20% of the proceeds of this are going to a columnist, or a radio show host, or simply advertising in its publication, I will make an educated decision about whether I want to donate there. And there will be people who will say, I'm still going to donate because those those ads are essential in raising that money. Um, I understand that. I mean, I know social media influencers, which is really a lot of where I think increasingly this advertising is going to go in the firm community. You know, this is their Parnassa. Again, it's that it. I guess it is fair. I mean, I, I personally would certainly look into something if someone asked me to promote something, um, especially for money. Uh, I would definitely make sure that it is legitimate. But the question really comes down to transparency. That's really the bottom line.
1: Yeah, you know, I'll mention something about transparency, and you can feel free to ignore this, and perhaps I'm out of line. But I'm going to say, I always wondered about the transparency of organizations that Perhaps they're transparent in some ways, but they don't necessarily say what the money is going for in a direct way. I'm going to mention Cars for Kids only because if you're listening to the radio in New York or anywhere else in the United States and you hear that jingle, it's just something and we're really helping kids, whatever they're saying on that. Of course, it goes to a film organization that does a lot of Kiruv, which might be a wonderful organization. I'm not criticizing Ura right now. But I do tend to think it's not fair for them not to be so upfront about what the money is going towards. you got to search to find out that it's actually an Orthodox Jewish organization. So that's a kind of lack of transparency that always bothered me in a different kind of way. Perhaps there's no corruption there, but Cars for Kids doesn't imply that it's Jewish in any way. Maybe someone could argue, hey, if you're going to donate your car, look into it. Do an internet search. You'll find it out. But something about it rubs me the wrong way.
0: Absolutely. And I think a lot of this, I mean, this is a larger conversation, but... <laughs> and I'd say this also as a Robinson, like, you know, this big goal of Q Road as a fundraising, you know, a, a, as what, you know, people want to fundraise for. Outreach is great, but what does it really mean when I want to see the line items? You know, is, is it paying for <laughs> private drivers and vacations and, you know, trips to department stores? I'm not joking. This is, I, I know, I, I've heard about this. For many people within these organizations, where funds have been really misused, um, so there's of is like this big, big word, but you know how much of it is actually going to paying for shiurim, how much of it is actually going to paying for yeshiva tuition for, for a kid who you know feels that they want to explore Judaism more. There are so many ways to do it right, and there are also so many ways to do it wrong.
1: Well, I'm even talking about the fact that, let's say 100% goes to shiurim and paying tuition for kids for yeshiva. The words cars for kids does not imply that it is a Jewish organization. If I hear that ad without knowing that it's actually Ura, I'm going to assume that you're somehow helping kids generically in general without anything to do with orthodoxy. I don't mean they can't help orthodox kids, but it doesn't sound like it's helping them become religious. That's the problem I have. Right. You talked about saving Yoheved in that tweet, in that series of tweets. Could you tell me what saving Yoheved was? That was a great example of what you're talking about.
0: I think that specific fundraiser, and this is, again, two months ago that this came out, but it was about a woman who needed uh, an urgent kidney transplant uh, from a woman in Israel. And, you know, this was one of the fundraisers of which between two to five percent of it actually went to this Yochaved. Um, you know, there's this other other larger question, uh, which I've I've heard said before this article even came out, which is well, most of these stories are actually medical procedures needed in Israel, um, which is very strange because you guys have nationalized healthcare, right? Right. So in the United States, you may be, you know, thrown a bill of hundreds of thousands of dollars for some serious procedure. But in in Israel, that is a much...
1: <laughs> it should a, raise a, another red flag.
0: A, a ...situation. Exactly. So, you know, I think the fact that people are not even asking that question shows you how both well-intentioned and also naive many donors are.
1: What was the percentage again? Do you remember what it was with that saving Yocheved? How much money actually went to Yocheved, and how much didn't?
0: It, it was on average between two to five percent of all the fundraisers they looked at.
1: That's really upsetting. Since you did this, I'm not going to call it reporting, but since you publicized this article that came out in Israel, in general, have you heard more pushback saying that, no, it's not really true? Or has the response been, it's actually even worse than you let people know? Uh,
0: Unfortunately, it's been the latter. Unfortunately, I've gotten... Um, A lot of people reaching out saying, you know, well, did you look into this organization or that organization? I donated once. I saw something. I worked there once. I'm an accountant. I know this stuff. This is not right. So, you know, I did see that. I got a lot of tips. And then the other thing I did, you know, see was just the sort of online response was sort of overwhelming. Um, People were really, I mean, rightfully horrified and I think uh, really taken aback by by this story. Um, because it co- it comes so close to home, right? We all receive these fundraisers, and we all take them seriously.
1: So what can we as a community do? There is a big problem out there. I'm sure there are some organizations that are fiscally transparent, that are not just using lots of money on overhead that's inappropriately spent. I'm sure there are some wonderful organizations. I know one organization here in Ramat Beid Shemesh, which from everything I know is extremely well-regarded, is Lamana Achai. I believe it's yeah. extremely transparent. We need more organizations like that. What should the community, we as an Orthodox community do to try and limit the damage of these corrupt organizations and to emphasize those which are actually good? What can we do?
0: Great question. Um, Part of the answer I think is, there there are a few ways to do this. Number one, on the grassroots level, quote unquote grassroots donors, the smaller donors, the average person who sees one of these fundraisers and gives $36, $180. Uh, should be educated about the potential for their dollars to be misused and the questions that they should be asking um, when they see these things. I think they should also be considering, we should also be considering, you know, raising our voices, whether in public forums or in letters to many of the outlets that really promote this stuff, whether they're print outlets, whether they're digital. I mean, if you're in WhatsApp groups for most, for these from publications, many of them do promote this sort of stuff. And I mean, I I feel like I, I get several WhatsApp texts a day with a new medical procedure that someone needs. So there is that sort of, I would say grassroots accountability on a bigger scale. I think lay leaders need to demand accountability from nonprofits they are supporting. And I think this is partly a generational issue where older generations may have not done this as well. There was a different culture about it. Um, especially like post-Holocaust, you know, to support whatever Jewish organization that comes across your doorstep. But I have literally heard lay leaders in Manhattan organizations tell me straight up, oh, I know the numbers and the reports that we get are made up and they just throw their hands up. And to me, that's unconscionable. The third answer is really, of course, investigative journalism, which we don't really have as much of um, at all. Frankly, unfortunately, we have to keep going, relying on the marker with this story or Haaretz with the Haim Balder story, right, to do the sort of work that needs to be done internally in the community. Accountability is the only way to affect change. It can never come from inside an organization, especially if the embedded culture is is deeply corrupt.
1: Part of that corruption, I'm just thinking now, I'm almost going back to something we talked about before, but. What really is so upsetting about it, and well, there are a lot of things that are upsetting about it, but one of the things that makes it so difficult to combat is that whole role of the Askanim in getting rabbinic approval, and then in turn, the promises that you see being made on behalf of the same rabbinim about all the good things that will happen should you give to this corrupt charity. It becomes a cycle. We see these ads where a Gadol b'torah
0: It's a business.
1: You know, a Gadol Batora will say, you know, if you want to Yeshua, give to this thing. And then if Avital or Scott or anybody else would go and say, this is corrupt, mm-hmm. you're not saying that the organization's corrupt. You're saying that the rabbi, who probably has nothing to do with it, but was his signature was procured, he's corrupt. And then you fall that, into all yeah. sorts of political problems.
0: Sure. And I don't mind
1: political problems, but people won't even listen to you.
0: I, I think <laughs> in terms of strategy and in terms of optics, it may... You know going after the rabbis is probably not gonna be the most successful way to to deal with this. Um just exactly for the reasons you said. Um I think oftentimes unfortunately the most the most shady business in this stuff happens in the shadows by no names, you know, by people you've never heard of. Um you have to do some you know some real internet sleuthing, which is totally doable by the way. Um but you could you you know, they're, they're rarely done by people, I would say, at the forefront of this. And, and that's really, I think, where more light is needed.
1: I want to ask you a question sort of in your dual role as a Robinson and as a journalist now, because this is something which I have a hard time with. I know there's lots of corruption and people, frankly, knock on my door all the time. And a lot of them are fake, I'm sure. From experience, I know some of them are fake. Some of them are not fake, but the causes that they represent are causes they don't support. And I don't like the optics of people knocking at my door and then my kids know to say, bad time, go away. And meanwhile, I'm te- you said before, because staka is so important to us in the Torah world, it's such an important value. And I'm always afraid, and I'm sure many other people are as well, that by saying no to a guy who comes to your door or to one of these organizations begging for money, we're giving the opposite message to the people who are watching us, our kids. What would you say to that? How do you educate properly? I know I'm asking you a question which is a little bit different now, but how would you educate to make sure that young people who don't necessarily understand the nuances of this don't think that stucca isn't important to us. They understand that everything we're mentioning now, it's a matter of which staka to give to. How do you educate in that direction?
0: I mean, it's a great question. Uh, we, have a, we have a huge body of halakhic work that talks about the ethics of tzedakah, the halachos, which, you know, what are the priorities, right? And I think it's important to teach children, you know, at a at a reasonable age, at a certain point, point. and my kids are young, so I don't want to preach. But it seems to me that this, it's an opportunity to actually teach children about having the discretion, being able to determine, you know, where do I want my dollar to go? It doesn't make sense to tell a six-year-old, uh, that guy who just knocked on my door is probably a scam, no. But I think there, there is a way to sort of talk about, we have a certain amount of money that we set aside for tzedakah and let's figure out a way to, together where that money can go in a way that we really research it, where we really understand where it's going. Personally, my husband and I have chosen that, you know, we, we know a, certain, a few families that we directly know of, that we know need help. And that is where our tzedakah goes. And B'serat Hashem, you know, as my children get older, I hope to be able to introduce my children to these families so that they know who these people are, so that they see, you know, exactly how we make those decisions. The, the people who knock on doors, I don't think that's the biggest problem, I think, because the scale is much smaller, right? If you give, you're giving, you know, whatever, 10, 20 bucks, thank you, goodbye. You know, I think the real problems are, are these mass scale campaigns, um, that are now made accessible because of the internet, which is good. We're able to raise more money, on, you know, for Tzedekah. But really, there there are, there are a lot of questions that come up that are that, and we're talking about millions of dollars, not you know that sort of money, like a few hundred thousand dollars that that person might raise in one sweep of you know an area in the five towns.
1: Yeah, what you're saying now does make a lot of sense. Personally, what I do with my own kids is. I try to remind them and they always say, yes, we know, we know, but I constantly remind them when I say no to somebody, I say, you understand that we actually have a regular Horat Keva, which means a regular amount that we give every month to organizations that we know are good organizations. So, but I don't know if there's any really good answer. Well, Avital, I really appreciate your time, especially with everything that you're going through right now. Coming on the podcast means a lot to me and the information you provided today is very, very important. So Avital Shizek-Goldschmidt, thank you again for joining me on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This was a real pleasure.
1: Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more you'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers and you'll be helping Jewish coffee house spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month and you can stop anytime. So join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast and Jewish coffee house can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. on JewishCoffeeHouse.com.